You're doing weird things with your legs today. Am I? Yeah. That's just what did what else did I do? I'm well aware that this might be a just bit. that. Okay. That's enough. Hello and welcome to the Daft Souls podcast. My name is Matt Lees and I'm joined by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matthew. You sort of cross your legs, but you've put the leg that gets crossed underneath your leg. Like usually it goes on top. You yeah. put it underneath. I'm sat like a toddler who hasn't worked out the whole crossed leg thing yet. A toddler in an executive chair. <laughs> that's basically us. That's that's who we are. I am boss baby. Yeah. This week on Daft Souls, we've got some fun stuff coming up. We have got... We're going to briefly talk about... Um, like, okay, this is funny because we put the running order on the floor like, like we're professionals. A, like we're a cool band. It turns out it's slightly too far away to see. <laughs> Matt can't read it. I can read it. I, we're going to be. Oh, you've moved it now. We're going to be talking about stories untold. Very a briefly. Bit. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the signal from Tolva. Mm-hmm. Cool explorationary indie FPS. We're going to be talking about sexy brutal. Just Indeed. A, just a little bit. Just a touch of that. Much more on that next episode, and then we're going to be diving straight into. Regular features, don't step on my childhood, and the question pouch. Yes. We don't have a name for the question We haven't got the five questions with devs because it turns out it's really hard to get devs to actually do that. Also this week, we're not going to have any Rain World chats because we decided it's getting patched and things are getting changed. We're just going to look at it in a little bit. Wait till it's maybe in a a more complete state. I really want to like Rain World a great deal. You know, just coming into a new area, seeing a new creature, and then it doing something a little bit unexpected. God, that's vague. But yeah, if the developers are true to their vision of patching it, making it a a smoother experience to get through and see all the wonderful stuff they've made, uh, then that's great. We'll be descending on it like hungry seagulls on delicious carbohydrate-rich video game content. And the same with Nier Automata. Nier Automata. I am still playing that. I'm now on the third playthrough. It doesn't just keep looping and looping and looping. Uh, It just does that twice for reasons I'm not clear on. But anyway, I am going to come back to that later. I want to actually finish it, uh, in which I think I have to finish five five different endings to finish it. Rather you than me, man. It's actually pretty cool, like, I've got to say. like, And yeah, I, I as I said last time about having to repeat the game and having to do it again, you kind of do and you kind of don't. I mean, you do, but it only takes like an hour and a half, two hours tops. It's just, you just blast through everything. But anyway, I'll come back to that again at a later point because it is interesting. I'm just not quite there. The people at home uh, in a later episode of Darth Souls can also look forward to my uh, blazing hot review off the presses of Super Mario Galaxy 2. Whoa, you're playing in that game? I know. That game's so new. <laughs> it's very new. Nah, screw it. Like, those games, Super Mario Galaxy games, are supposed to be some of the best games ever made. Well, this is it. People were saying it's one of the greatest platformers ever. I realised I hadn't played it. I literally dusted off my Wii U um, <laughs> and bought, had to buy a Wiimote, put the little plastic thing on my TV, and it's proven worth it. Uh, yeah, those games are good. When I finish it, I'm going to tell people whether Super Mario Galaxy 2 is worth buying or not. Wow, well, hold on for that hot, hot opinion. Uh, first of all, I just want to talk really briefly about Stories Untold. Mm. Um, first of all, I have to say, Stories Untold, I, in the process of trying to remember what that name is, I always cycle through about eight different names before I get to it. Like, is it the Unknown Tales, Tales Before, unknown Strange souls, Stories? Strange. <laughs> uh, and uh, honestly, I'm not even joking. Like, I almost, I, we put up a video today, which is us playing through the first chapter of uh, Stories Untold. Which you can do yourself if you don't like watching twerps from the internet play video games. You can get the demo, you can play it. And it's great. It's really good. I mean, even that as like a a 20-minute experience which you can have for free if you're even vaguely interested in uh, 80s-themed technology things. It's not even really about the 80s, is it? It isn't, and that's interesting. But it's kind of about nostalgia and confusion and technology being odd. 
And I mean, you basically put up a video about it, which is, again, really worth watching, but not, it doesn't really tell you about the game at all. It's more about the tonality of it. Just go and watch that video. But- uh, yes, it is me bending over backwards like a contortionist trying to talk about stories untold without spoiling anything. Yeah, which is really hard. Yep. But one of the things I thought was really interesting, when we actually played, um, I think when we either played through it last time, I think when we played through it in the video, there's a bit where I'm like, I think there's an interesting element in the fact that the first thing in the House Abandoned, it sees you playing on effectively a kind of old-style computer keyboard where you have to like do, it's like a text adventure. You're playing a text adventure, yeah. yeah. Um, But it's frustrating because you try and actually do text adventure-style things and they don't work. So yes. like you you type like um like go to look, inventory look and all these terminology things that everyone who played these games back in the eighties remembers pressing uh N for to go north for example yeah they don't work even if you're in an office you you move go by north. compass directions yeah. yeah so it's kind of weird and frustrating but I found that an odd one I'm like why is this kind of why is this annoying and it turns out like there was actually a great piece on. Uh, Gamma Sutra about it, about how they basically said, oh yeah, we purposefully wanted it to be like aggravating and annoying and like confusing. And they, they, it was interesting that what they'd done is they'd chosen the 80s aesthetic of all these 80s style machines that were very odd and idiosyncratic. Uh, yeah. And But the problem is because of some of these machines, especially this, you know, text game thing, actually are real tech, they wanted everyone to still have that experience, that first experience again even though it seemed familiar. So they kind of yeah. purposefully went and made their own system that was kind of annoying and weird. There are some very uh, fun things that it does, whereby when you arrive at some of the horror beats in the first chapter and you're playing this text adventure and it's all scary, there are things that you don't want to do that people will know if they've watched either of my videos about it, probably. Um, and then having to enter a command and the game doesn't accept it and you're like, oh, and you try a second command yeah. and oh, and you're you're working against this thing that you don't even want to happen yes. anyway. So it's a, this, it's a torturous addition of tension to it. Yeah, scene. and there are elements, I mean, I've just finished last night playing the second section and again, it has another method of basically like, basically stretching out something you don't want to stretch out and yeah. it's just being like, you've got to do this now and you in the first game, when it's like typing in things and it's like, just, do it just do it <laughs> whereas you know in the second like uh chapter they sort of do it in a different way if you you're doing something you really don't want to do and it's just oh it just takes ages and you're like oh stop it but importantly matthew is playing this despite not liking horror games i don't know and actually i've got to say the first um episode the house abandoned really freaked me out really chilled me <laughs> wonderful chiller but it is a chiller it's not jump scare stuff it's no. just you know there are elements that are frightening but it's more Spooky. And you know, this is, uh, again, in the video I just made, I mention uh, Soma, and I mentioned wanting to do a video on Soma that I really, realistically, I don't think I'm going to make. And what is frustrating about Soma, um, if people remember, that's Frictional, who made Amnesia, The Dark Descent, went on to make uh, Soma, wonderful underwater horror game that looks far too much like Bioshock, and that's very unfortunate and unfair that the designers would be sort of tarred with that. Um, but the Soma is full of jump scares and it is full of running away from monsters and then frantically using the physics engine to like punch buttons into a keypad as an awful thing lumbers up behind you. And it's terrifying. Um, but the really terrifying stuff in Soma is psychological horror and like the ideas that it explores that, like you say, are chilling. And it's kind of unfortunate that all that is hidden at the end of the game and you have to wade through God knows how many monster cupboards to get to it. And it's a great game. And if you like monster cupboards, oh my God, why haven't you bought Soma yet? 
but it is frustrating to me that it has some truly phenomenal ideas to do with video games and and uh, sort of the protagonist that people aren't going to know about or discuss. Having said that, we have said a few times though that Soma on PC has a patch which makes the enemies just not. I think yeah, yeah. Which is uh, which apparently lots of people played it and said yes, still really good, still a great game, really creepy, and they're just sort of hanging around, not doing anything, and it doesn't really impact the game negatively. Yeah, that actually does make perfect sense to me. Um, Yes, there are only even a few bits that I think that would utterly ruin, and obviously it's going to ruin certain developmental beats, but. but by and large, a lot of the stuff that makes Soma great are going to uh, survive in time. I'm tempted to try it. Like, Honestly, but- it wouldn't take... It, it's a full day to play through the game, and some of the stuff at the end is yeah, so it, clever. It's a really scary day. It's an awful day. I don't like being scared, as you as you can find out if you watch me playing The House Abandoned. Um, just me going, oh dear, oh no, <laughs> and very slowly reclining into myself like a turtle who's just stepped into very cold water. Do play uh, episodes three and four, though, man. Oh, I'm going to. Like, you- I loved it. Like I, The first one scared me, but I really liked it. It was a really classic bit of chiller. Mm-hmm. The second one I played had a totally different tone in a way I wasn't expecting, and I loved it. It didn't actually frighten me. I just loved it. It was just a wonderful piece of fiction. Yeah. Um, I love it. I the really love it. The third is also a very interesting piece of fiction, but it's very slow, and then the fourth is... Uh, uh, is- Absolutely worth playing. Very I good. might hop onto that tonight and just get through Ooh, it all. Do because... see that you do. Ah, oh. I'd really recommend it. Yeah, fantastic recommendation. But let's talk about another video game. Good. How's that for a segue? <laughs> <laughs> that was professional, suave. Let's, now we talked about this thing. I'm picking up. Let's on talk about something else. The signal that you're sending me, Matt, is that we should move on to our next game. Yes, which is which is the signal. Bomberman from. T- <laughs> no, I'm joking. We're not going to talk about Bomberman. No, Bomberman. we can. Nah, it's really good. I no, would man. like it to have a good. Do you know how much Bomberman costs on Switch? How much? Forty-five quid. You're joking. I'm not. I'm genuinely not. How great would it be if that license existed outside of Nintendo's I mean, it's, hands? It's, it's just bizarre because I mean, it, no, it's Hudson. It's not owned by. But like, it's being. Why is it only on Nintendo? Cars? I don't know. I don't know. You ever played Bomberman Zero? The, the, the no. hardcore Bomberman reboot. No, it, no one played it. It featured, a, the opening cutscene features Bomberman uh, looking around distressed and then text comes up on the screen that goes, is this a dream or is this reality? And then, this is a Bomberman game? Anyway. Yeah, they tried to reboot it, it didn't pan out. It was a disaster. It makes I, me sad because my, my favourite game on the Wii was just the, I think it was Mega Bomberman. It was just on the virtual console download. Yes. And just playing four player Mega Bomberman was just filled up so much of my university days. And I was like, oh, it'd be great to get a little Bomberman game on the Switch. 50 quid? Get out. I tell you what, Bomberman is a game within the greater canon of video games. Bomberman doesn't have the sort of respect and the name that it deserves. It's because they keep bringing out new ones that cost 45 quid. Well, yeah. Like, why is why is a tiny Bomberman as iconic as he looks? Why can't we get action figures of that? They've done some weird stuff with that franchise, though. Like, they're not up there with Sonic the Hedgehog in terms of what the f- are you doing, but they've done some weird stuff. Like the, other than Bomberman Zero, yeah. Well, no, Mega Bomberman was odd. Like that I was don't like that. well, it was on the Mega Drive, and it, they kind of to mix it up from the SNES version of Bomberman One and Bomberman Two. They added things like giant multicolored rabbits that you oh, could kangaroos. ride. No, they were kangaroos. Kangaroo rabbits. They look like more. They look like kangaroo rabbits to me. What's wrong with that? I'm not going to die on this hill, but let's just anyway. They, they did different things like you could punch and kick, and and they basically had the same system as a lot of the skills that you could get in Bomberman Two, I think. But they were rabbit. Bunk kangaroo rabbits. But then 
the single oh, player no, stuff. There were kangaroos. There was Bomb Man sixty four, which was like had a three D adventure based like Oh, it didn't have like a world story. you explored. Yeah. <laughs> like a career, a bomber career. Well no, I think it was just like a sort of Super Mario light. I wonder if Hudson's development of the Bomberman franchise has ever been hampered by the fact that you're a Bomberman, you know? Yeah. And like since 9-11, I mean, well, obviously there were people who blew things up before, but it's like, does that mean that like Disney aren't going to make a Bomberman film because it's really dodgy? It is about man who bombs. I would love an article on that. Anyway, well, I mean, yes, I'm sure it should have happened already. Let's, let's be talk honest. about the signal from Tolva. Signal from Tolva is a game which was made by Big Robots, mm-hmm. lead designer on which is Jim Rossignol, mm-hmm. aka uh, the man who used to be my boss, a yeah. rock paper shotgun. So uh, how's that for disclosure? And now, who's the boss now, Jim? I can tell people what I think of your game, which is it's really it's quite good. It's good, yeah, it's nice, yeah. So we both know Jim a bit, but um. I, yeah, I really like the signal from Tolva. I like it much more than I liked um, Sir, You Are Being Hunted, which I liked, but was too hard and too scary for me. Uh, yes, so the signal from Tolva is a FPS where you walk around a sort of quasi-open world, you are hijacking all the little robots that are wandering around, and you capture bunkers that spawn more robots of your sort of colour, mm. uh, and then they go off and have little pitched battles with other robots. You pick up MacGuffins. Yeah, you- loosely it's kind of like a big, never-ending game of, like, King of the Hill with different bases, with different robots. It's basically indie development, single-player planet side. Yeah, that's kind of how it feels to me as well. But it's very chilled out. It's Yeah, so this is funny to me, because um, this is a game where I know Jim so well. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not that close to him. I just... I just you follow sounded him. unbelievably yeah. weird. I know you, Jim. Uh, in your brain. I've always known you uh, through... So he is just a very chilled man. He goes for a lot of English countryside walks. And the thing that stuck in my head throughout Signal from Tolva, which is basically a nice walk, but with some laser battles. Yeah. Um, you know, people say like um, golf is the best way to ruin a nice walk. Yeah. Single from Tolva feels like the fastest way to ruin a game like Proteus. Yeah. Where you're just pottering around this sort of semi sci fi world. And then every so often there's a zap and a laser flies over your head and you go, whoa, and you put up your shield. It's funny. But what's also funny is uh, not only is it as sedate and sort of chilled out as Jim is, but I know that Jim loves a video game series called Stalker which are the, uh, I think, Ukrainian um, FPS series where you run around uh, the sort of in this, this fictional Chernobyl blast site um, and there's radiation and weird mutated dogs and lots of factions and you have, you know, um, clattering AK-47 gunfights in the rain. But the thing he always loved about that series that he has absolutely had his team recreate in Signal from Tolva is um, the thing where you, you crest a hill and then you see some zaps and you realise they're not at you but it's a few of your robots fighting a few other robots. And then you have that decision of like watching or approaching or sniping at it. And that was always what he loved in Stalker. It was fighting a faction and then having another faction show up and you realize that you're in trouble. Yeah. And choosing to run away. And actually, yeah. this is what we talked about. It always seems to come back to Horizon Zero Dawn recently, but the fun thing of being in a fight and realizing, no, this is too much for me. And then falling back. Yeah, leaving. Signal from Tolva does quite well. Yeah. And actually... I, I say it's very chilled. Often it's very chilled. You're just walking around and bumping into... A little bit slowly for my... T- like, th- there's not quite enough to look at for hiking over some of those hills. No, but obviously you then quickly realise that 
Um, it's also that the sci-fi influences are quite clearly worn on the sleeve. Like, you know, I've just finished, finally just finished the copy of Ancillary Justice that you lent oh, me right. about four months ago or something. But uh, it's yeah. a good book. Yeah, but there's an element of that as well in the fact that you, the character you play is not one, not a robot. You are a character who is using these robots as a kind of like server of things to just move around Yeah, in. you just jump into any of their bodies. So you don't even know who you are. And that's kind of an element of the story. And I'll come back to that in a bit. But... but Basically, it means that instead of quick travel, at any point, you just go, I want to go to this outpost that I control. Mm. So, yeah, I find that at first I found it a bit slow moving around. But then actually, after a while, it's like, well, actually, you just you just rather than being like quick travel and being like cheating somehow, it's changes the context of it in my head of it being like, well, why would I waste my time walking back there when I can just hijack another identical robot? Yeah, it doesn't make you feel lazy. It makes you feel like a cool commander. Yeah. Speaking of being a cool commander, have you unlocked the um, the command gun yet? I have. It, I haven't used it yet. It's. I immediately did because I love that. I love you know like it, it's a it's a gun you, that replaces one that replaces one of the guns in your loadout. You point it at one of these robots that you've got on your side. You zap them and then they become part of your little team and squad. They follow you around. Then you can right click anywhere to say go and capture that point or go and defeat everything that's there. Um, and this is great because the early gun lets you control two robots and then you've got your two robot buddies. So there's three of you. And uh, they're really quite good. And then I just have reached a sort of difficulties, not spike, but hillock. <laughs> I had my two boys and then I went, we're going to capture that bunker, boys. And then a couple of lasers blast out from the bunker. <laughs> boys, where did you go? Yeah. And they were both one-shotted spectacularly. Yeah. And then, you know, it's... it's- it gets rough quite quickly in a fun way, though. And like it is still chilled when you're just walking around. But then when you get into trouble, you get into trouble. But again, I have had some great moments of being like, oh, my word, I am in a lot of trouble here. But then I've noticed that, like, on a hill on the other side, like, there's a different faction kind of pottering about. Yes. And then being like, right, sniper rifle, shoot one of them. And then they start running down the hill for you, but then it ends up getting... So I've actually had a few times where I've escaped by basically being like, you guys fight each other, I'm just running away, which is really, really neat. And um, the, the main thing I've been actually, it does that really nice thing of not making you do any story at all. Mm. Like, you just get on with it. And what's interesting is actually, whilst I was enjoying it, at first I was just finding it a bit thin, maybe. I was like, oh. until I actually thought, actually, you know what? I just climbed up this bloody building to scan this thing, which has given me some some a, story. A, a, a lug n- of story. A nugget of something. Yeah. And then I went and actually thought, all right, let's look at these. And realised that a lot of these, I should have been reading them earlier, because actually related to like almost the place you find them, in terms of being like, yeah. oh, this is about this. And I've immediately actually like really, I really like that. And having read like, I didn't have many, I had like eight things and they're all just like a tiny bit of page, tiny bit of a piece of information. Yeah. And I love that what it has, it lends the game's story sort of an air of of written fiction in a way, like a kind of novelization. Because what it does is rather than just being like, hey, here's an email, you know, (laughs) here's a message, here's an old advert or something, here's a thing. Uh, what it will have is it will have a nugget of information, but then underneath it will have like the broker's take on it. And the broker is clearly the only one of the only characters that you really know who he is. And it's the person who has set you up to do in this, thing. this weird exploration. You're here because you're looking for the signal from Tolva. Yeah. There's a signal here. And the broker keeps saying quite early on, it's like, I think this is probably a trap. Like, I don't yeah. think this is even a good idea. You shouldn't be here. But the broker is the person who has helped you hack into this robot network so you can investigate this planet. But it means that. It means that a the the actual text in it doesn't need to be like overtly obvious. Where in a lot of these games, it's like, oh, you just read two bits of flavor text and you've already worked out the whole plot of the game because mm. it has to kind of be obvious. Whereas in this, it can be really 
odd. But you always have the broker saying, oh, this, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. This doesn't make sense. Or like, oh, actually, I wouldn't read into this too much. That's a really good point. But again, it's written from the perspective of a character. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's right or valuable. It's just... Yeah, that's a really good point. I also, it's, I, I had a great moment in terms of it. Yeah, you're right that it's storytelling is so stripped down, but really not unpleasant at all. Um, my, my wife was watching me play and she was saying, I really don't get what you're doing in this game. And I was like, well, you collect things. And she's like, why? And I'm like, is, there's a signal from Tolva. I'm here to find out what it is. But I didn't really know. But just after she'd answered that question, I found myself, I'd finished a firefight and I was looking at the scenery, scanning it with the nice scanning effect mm. that it has. And uh, I realized I was looking at a hand, like half a hand, yeah. like an enormous, super building-sized hand that was like half buried. And then I said, oh my God, over there, there's a skull. And I realized I'm in the wreckage of a giant super robot. And obviously the game doesn't tell you what that is. It, it no. doesn't even point the camera at it so you notice it. But that moment of discovery is yours. And that was kind of like, and I was trying to point it down. Yeah, to I had me. the same thing. I was like scanning a thing and I'm like, oh, what is this? It's an it's a giant eyeball and a giant head. I'm like, what the? <laughs> Similarly, there's also I was c- going to collect a piece of data and I was glassing <laughs> glassing it. That's from Cormac McCarthy's um, the book where uh, the the man runs around chasing a man with a gun. He's got a million dollars. Not the road. <laughs> it doesn't Cormac matter. McCarthy's the Cormac other McCarthy's one. the other one. Right. Um, but yeah, so I was glassing this uh, this um, which means looking at something through binoculars. Right. This, this whole thing. I'm glad you. Yeah. I've had to explain it, and now any semblance of coolness from it is it's gone. Is vaporized. Um, looking through binoculars at this stone circle, and there was a, essentially a creature there. And more than once, Signal from Tolva has put story or weird creatures down and just not pointed the camera at it. Yeah. Which, which ex- again, is exactly what Stalker does. Stalker has these things called um, like anomalies, whereby sometimes radiation interacts with the world in weird ways, but the game never points the camera at it. Sometimes you just notice something profoundly odd but maybe you don't notice it. And that's fine too, because it lends the entire game a sense of mystery. And I had something happen in Solver that happened kind of in the corner of my eye that really, I don't know what it was. Because it was, it was again, it was something that was interesting, that was happening. And then there was kind of an effect that kind of led me, it kind of made me think, oh, there was maybe something there a split second ago that now isn't there. Yep. And I just wasn't looking at it, so I don't know what it was. I had a great moment of looking. Which is awesome. I looked at something directly through my binoculars, and I went, "Oh wow!" And I maybe I should scan, and then it just vanished. It yeah. was like, no, that was that was an important plot point. You can't take that away from me. Yeah, exactly. Now. And have you seen the little wobbly things, the little like kind of deca- like dodecahedron things that just sort of bumble to themselves, like no. robotic things? Have you this- had a drop pod land on you yet? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, one of the things I love about it, and this is this is remarkably British, and again, maybe kind of a signifier of Jim, the fact that it is such a chilled out game. Um, so usually, you never walk into fights unless you know you're walking into a fight. There are exceptions, though. <laughs> there are points where you will be ambushed, but they are marked on the map as ambush points. <laughs> so it's like you go there, and you know you're going to get ambushed, and it'll be quite a hard little fight. But then it'll be like you've cleared that ambush point. Now you get a little upgrade thing, like which is like, I, I love how, how British that is. It's that like, is. we're going to ambush you over here at six o'clock. It's, it's good. I wonder if we'll have more to talk about it. I wasn't expecting us to have so much to chat about. I thought it was quite a simple game. But I yeah. did as well. I, I liked it, but I liked the simplicity. And to be honest, it was just the point where I was like, I like this, but mm, I don't really know. I didn't have a hook. And then I just went and read the things. And that was kind of a lovely point for me because in a way, it's like, I totally get why they've done that and why they've actually made it so like, you know what, you don't have to read any of this. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. But it's funny that like, that was the point when the game for me clicked. When I actually went and started reading the things, I thought, oh, I've actually, I now care about this. I'm invested in it. 
I think it's it's just so weird to uh, buy a game that cares about your time so much that it doesn't try and justify its own existence. And yeah. I wonder if um, it has a, a, a weird tonality that might come from the fact that Jim has this built-in influence of like rock, paper, shotgun and all of the fans of his writing. You know, Big Robot can make a game and people will buy it. But then as such, when you play Signal from Tolva, it just it just exists. It doesn't say like, it doesn't try and excite you. It's like, do you remember Tharsis, the dice game in yes. space? Like there was a weird game like Signal from Tolva but that had to work so hard in telling you this is exciting. We've got a yeah. story. Yeah. This is what's happening. And but maybe because of Jim's, um, I, I'm speculating here. But maybe because of Jim's built-in PR network, he's just like, I made a thing, and you just roll into it, and how much you get out of it is up to you. And yeah. that means it's just full of very pleasant surprises, and your expectations are. And so I do low. also feel like, without wanting to like spoil anything at all, like. It's quite nice that you can just drop into it, play it for about 45 minutes without reading anything or without caring about the story much and just doing stuff. But there are enough elements in the game. And we're not talking like, this is the interesting thing, we're not talking like traditional environmental storytelling of it being like, the camera points at this. Yeah, It's just like, you. there are a handful of odd things in the world and a handful of odd things that kind of happen that make you start to go, what's <laughs> And that's the point where if you don't know what's going on, like you kind of start to go, oh, well, I guess I'll wait for the story to tell me. But then realizing you have this stuff to read was then like, ah, oh, ah. So I think it was interesting. That was the point. There was a point where I was like, I'm going to look at this. And as soon as I did, it's like, huh. But I love that. It's not there. Like, because so many games, I just feel like have like tons of object, collectible objects with flavor text that are just there as kind of like icing. Yeah. Whereas in this, because there, as far as I can tell, is like basically no actual storytelling once you're in the game after the intro. Yeah. Like there may be some later, I don't know, but and for a long time, it's just like no cutscenes, no, like there's pop-ups of like text that appear as, which is again, the broker saying, I don't know what's going on with this place. This is kind of <laughs> odd. Um, but there's already some really weird stuff going on that I'm really enjoying. In a weird way, it's like, how do you get players interested in your game story? And the answer is just not give them a story. Yeah. And then players will start going, well, what, what's Give happening? them enough questions that they want to know what's... And that's the thing is it got to the point where like I had a tiny traffic jam of, of questions in my head of being like, what was that about? What was that about? What's this about? And it was simple things like, there's a giant robot. Like, well, what's that? And then, you know, it, it took three things for me to go, all right, I'm going to go and read this stuff. And then I was immediately glad I did. But yeah, funny. It was one of those games where I was like enjoying it. It was simple. I wasn't really grabbed by it. And I played for about 45 minutes. And I was at the point where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to carry on with this. But now I'm kind of into it. So it's, it's yeah. Very briefly, let's talk about our final game before we bounce onto some regular features. Let's talk about Sexy Brutal, a game we weren't going to talk about. And then it came out. I saw people talking about it this morning, and then you and I squeaked in a couple came of like hours. a wrecking ball. Yeah, well, it kind of made waves. I think a couple of uh, kind of popular outlets gave it very high scores. I know Jim Sterling gave it ten out of ten, which I think was probably the first thing that got it on lots of people's radars because mm. um, he doesn't like games sometimes. But it's great. Like Sexy Brutal is in my for my money, it's basically like almost like a cross between Ghost Trick and um, Gregory Horror Show. <laughs> which are two very cool games. Neither of which I have played. Oh, wow. But shall I give the uh, vague top-down sure. talk about those Do. games? So Sexy Brutal is a delightfully weird concept for a game, but executed with like a lot of confidence and in a beautiful way. Um, you are in a fancy casino hotel. A lot of wonderful guests have been invited for a fabulous party, and now they're all being killed by the staff in one brutal night. And then you've got this Groundhog Day situation where you are tasked with saving them. And each person you have to save is like a chapter of the game. 
you explore the um uh this hotel casino but the game is on a timer and a lot like uh, the new hitman levels um that we were talking about earlier this year um it, people run around on a timetable and they can't see you so there's no way of like oh this npc saw you so yeah. now they're going to go and do something different you're just not allowed to go into rooms with people in them yes so you have to sort of do stuff to those rooms before they get there you have to if, if you want to save someone's life you maybe you see them and then you uh, follow them around for the rest of the day. That all gets marked on your map. You find out who kills them, then you can go and follow them around for a day. Yeah, so it does a fascinating thing. Like, there's a couple of things about it which are really interesting. The first thing I think is interesting is that, from what I gather, there are lots of murders all happening in the same day. Yes, and you've noticed, though, that as you walk around, you hear, like, the power flickers, or there's a massive thump. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that was someone dying. Yes. That's not what I need to worry that's about. That's not what right you're doing now. yet. So it's, it is very much like one set Groundhog Day thing of like, in this big, long, awful day, all of these people are going to die. And you might actually see some of them dying before it's a thing that you can even stop. And. I don't know how it expands, but there are things like abilities you unlock that allow you to do different things. Yeah, I think every person you save is uh, gives you a, uh, a new mask, which means that you can affect the world in different ways. And what I'm hoping that we'll come back next week and discuss is uh, because you'll explore the whole or most of the mansion when you try and save your first real uh, pair of people, I'm hoping that they then give you a toy that immediately, in an ideal world, will recontextualize the mansion and go, oh my god, I can do this now. But that means I can do this in this room and this in this room. And that if the game can continue to do that and have one environment that you just then change. Yeah. Like those like the tables with candles are clearly a thing because there's a few. Possibly, of those. yeah. And there's some air vents, obvious. Yeah. Obvious. But but no, it's it's the same thing. I mean, uh, Gregory Horror Show basically was a game that had a similar setting of like you are. This in, was a was this a rare game? No, it was a PlayStation 2 game based on a an anime series, I think. Um, but basically it was like you were a guest at this hotel and the only way you could get out of the hotel was by stealing the souls of the guests. Sure. Um, and giving them to death. It had a very spooky woman with a syringe. Yeah, it did. Like it was all like weird, almost like paper craft characters and but then it was the same thing of basically they were all kind of murderous, horrible people. But the difference was it had the same system of basically sneaking around the house, peeking through doors, which is something that's in Sexy Brutal a lot, listening, uh, and listening to conversations. Where in that game, it was all about trying to understand those characters and understand their weaknesses because they all had hidden their souls. They were like in jars in different right. places. So you had to kind of understand what these characters were afraid of and then abuse that, basically. But it had the same thing of basically you not being able to go into rooms with the people in. But in Gregory Horror Show, it meant that they would chase you, and then you had to, like, run away, and your sanity meter would be going down. It was kind of a survival horror game. But in this, it just means it's like, you're not... It, there are rules that mean you're not allowed to. Like, if you go in, then it's like, basically it does a thing that basically means you've got, like, a few seconds to leave the room, otherwise something's going to happen. I don't know what. But it's that same thing of basically a game about eavesdropping and piecing together a narrative. And I'm already really enjoying seeing incidental things I don't think are relevant and being like, I wonder what they're talking about. Yeah, when I saw some, I saw a particular character die and from the conversation it became clear that she had relationships with multiple other characters that the game obviously didn't need to explore, which makes it a wonderful story because you're essentially opening to a random page in a very short, stupid, silly book. And then you get one sentence and you're like, wait, what? Okay. Hmm. But its inspirations are fascinating in the fact that I love the fact that it there's a description it uses for one of the systems, which is by you can basically, it, when you look through a door and you see somebody having a conversation, you know that they're there at that point in the day and they will be added to your map. Yes. And then your map is because it's a, a time-based thing, you can scrub through it. And the <laughs> scrubbing is a video term. And I love that, that it's like, this is using like video editing terminology for yeah. a timeline, which is what you work with in video. It also means um, that 
you don't get something that I find quite frustrating in adventure games, the just pottering around looking for a solution. Because even if you're just wandering around the mansion aimlessly, um, every item that you find or character you see gets added to your map. So even when you don't know what you're doing, you're still building up this database of knowledge and you're still achieving something. Exactly. And I'm hoping that, yeah, again, I have a lot of hopes and I'm hoping that Jim Sterling's 10 out of 10 means that the game will fulfill them. But But the idea of like, oh, I have to save this person and I go up to my later on very filled out map and then I'm scrubbing to watch where they go and yeah. uh, wondering where I can intercept them that kind of thing yeah I think it's it's clearly like I love the style it's got a lot of potential I'm really looking forward to playing more of it I and, was yeah. so delighted by its work yeah we'll talk more next week but or next episode but I was so delighted by have you been to the bar no if you read the, the bar is called like the drop of poison or something but um, if you read the bottles the shtick in the bar because there's loads of creepy crawly things in um, uh, underneath the bar in a glass case the idea is that any of the cocktails you get uh, have a special drop of venom or poison from one of the animals in the room, and that makes them illegal, but also highly sought out. And I'm like, this is just Gormenghast. This is that lovely, oily, um, larger-than-life world-building. It's it's a ton of... It's fun, you know? And the characters I'm saving are interesting enough that I quite want to save them. Well, this is why it's it's so much like Ghost Trick in the fact that it has this one... Ghost Trick, was that the... Was, did they release that on iPad as well? Yeah, you need to play Ghost oh, Trick. Oh, I'll play it tonight, yeah. Like, oh my... God. Ghost Trick is legitimately, may well be one of the best games ever made. It's fantastic. It's Why haven't you done a video on Ghost Trick? Well, I'd like to, but it's one of those games, again, that, like, there's there's a couple of things I could mention about it that are, like, amazing, but some of them are very obvious. The animation is just world-class. It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another thing which I think is quite cool, but I haven't really got a lot to say about it without showing the game. And it's a game that is so heavily narrative-based the puzzles are the game and then the story is the game and I don't want to spoil anything because it is it is amazing oh from start to finish. I'm going to play Ghost Trick tonight. The story, oh my God. When you get to the end of the story, you just it's amazing. It's one of those things where it's like it just keeps getting better and better and then the finale is amazing. It's it's legitimately one of the best pieces of video game like fiction I've ever played. Oh, I snap. love it. So, but anyway, it has the same mechanic of it being like you are basically trying to save people from murders, that you witness a murder and then you have to work out how to stop it. And again what keeps you going is that all of the characters who you're saving are really interesting characters that you want to save. Mm. So, yeah, that's kind of why everyone's going, it's like Ghost Trick. It's because it's characterization, really. Oh, I tell you what, as well, when you save people, that's going to change your timetabling, isn't it? Because if someone doesn't die, then that means both the murderer and the murdered now have, carry on. now have different paths through the world as well as you get in there. And I mean, I'm guessing it may be that then actually... Oh my God, gets, I wanna, yeah, no, <laughs> How I long wanna, are we recording today? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just stop and yeah. go and play some stuff. But yeah, Ghost Trick, man. I, if, it, if it's... I, it's This game, Sexy Brutal, uh, already I feel like it's easily, possibly a lot better than um, Gregory Horror Show, which was really interesting, but kind of frustrating in many regards. But maybe a Ghost Trick killer? I don't know. Maybe not. Ghost trick killer, but you can't kill a ghost. So good. Let's move on to... Let's move on to... Don't Step on My Childhood. Don't Step on My Childhood. Okay, so this time on Don't Step on My Childhood, due to popular request, actually, the video for this has gone up before the podcast, because people kept saying, it's kind of annoying me, so this game we can't see. So you can go and watch the video now, and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast, if you are that way inclined. So, Basically, the game I Why chose Why would they do time. that to themselves, though? Because then they'd have to watch Jill of the Jungle. Jill of the Jungle. What mm. a game. Now, from, this was a game... From 1992? 1992. 1992. Okay. So, as we talked about briefly in the video, this was a game by Epic Mega Games, uh, who became Epic Games. Uh, yeah, so the this, Unreal is, Engine. this is uh, before Jazz Jack Rabbit, and yep. then Gears of War, and soon to be... Uh, oh, no, because Cliff Bezinski has gone off on his own now. Yeah, but do you know there was only, like... 92 
was the point when they released Jill of the Jungle, yeah? And I think they released Unreal in 98. So think about that. Six years between Jill of the Jungle and Unreal. You know, I want to say, though, it's, that, it, like... To me, that is Compare Jill of the Jungle to... I think I think it was either 94 or 96 that was one of those legendary years in games, yeah. which gave us Super Mario Kart, Super Metroid, mm-hmm. one of the big Zelda, like Zelda Link to the Past. Leaps. And and then you compare any of those, you compare Super Metroids to Jill of the Jungle. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it was a big shift. So it, to clarify, we are talking about a heinously ugly platformer. Um, Whoa. With a with a with a feather in its cap, and that feather is that it was free. Yeah. So this was the era era of shareware. And for what me, is shareware for the kids listening to this? Album? So shareware basically meant that um it was because piracy was a huge thing with like you know tapes and stuff like that. Um, they kind of got around this by having shareware. Where basically shareware would give you a chunk of the game for free. And the idea was rather than saying to people, you know, don't copy that floppy and all this stuff, just be like, do just, just give it to people. So these things would be given away for free on magazines, on discs, or, you know, you could just borrow your friend's disc and copy it. And the idea was that you were just supposed to share these games for completely free. Yeah. And, but you get like, usually you get a third of the game, you get part one and there'd be three parts. And this was kind of a, a thing that in the case of this, it's you get the sequel if you pay money. Yeah. And some of these shareware games have the unbelievably charming appellation, like that you'll be playing the game and it'll go and you'll, you'll finish it. This is some of the old adventure games that Lee plays. Yeah. And it will say, thanks for playing. If you'd like the rest, please send $3 in a jiffy bag yep. to 17 Marfield Way. That was exactly <laughs> the same the with this. Yeah, was it? Like, this was with Epic. It was like, hey, thanks for playing. If you want more, then just send us a check and like, and we'll send you or part a two and part in three. a bag and we'll send you a floppy disk, which and, is unbelievable. And it was hugely successful. Like, Jill of the Jungle was one of Epic Mid Games' first big hits with this uh, shareware model of people basically playing the first part. Because you know what? Like it's not it's not a great game now. I'll be honest. I jumped into it, and in my head, it was a lot more fun than it was. If you but- want something that's a little stronger, oh, what's that game called with an alien man who runs around? His name? He's green. He bounces up and down. He was installed on a lot of Apple computers. Oh, the Blob? No, he has a ray gun. No, I'm trying to think what he's called. But if you're listening to this, leave a comment on CoolGhost.net and uh, Commander Keen. Yes. Oh, he wasn't green. Okay, whatever. He had a yellow helmet and he had very white skin, like completely white. Okay. But Commander Keen, yeah. No, he used to he used to hop around on pogo sticks and stuff. There you go. That game was nails hard at times as well. Anyway, but, but that was the Yeah, same. Commander Keen was better. But basically this game was a I just remember it so vividly, and it was a lot of it came down to this really kind of bassy. It's the sound, of the sound. Chip. Much like Fantasy Star, uh, our first game in Don't Step on My Child. Um, the hood. Uh, it's it's just this insane scronky sound yeah. file of like bow 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 bow, and whenever you I think jump. as a kid I found that like super evocative in terms of like I was scared of and some then, areas of that game just because it was like the sound was terrible. I bet you weren't afraid of picking up a key though. Yeah, yeah, the sound effects in that game just unbelievable. Um, but- the protagonist also slightly curious because if you thought Lara Croft was the first boob lady in tiny shorts. No. Being doing it for herself, and the third game in the Jill of the Jungle series was Jill Saves the Prince. So, well, there you go. That absolutely justifies her walking around in a thong for three games. Of course, it does. She yeah. saves a prince. Exactly. Um, yeah. Feminism. Different times. It was made by Tim Sweeney. It's just nuts. 
I'm like, Tim Sweeney made this game. It's a so, different time. I'm, I don't know if there's anything that's that interesting about the game, but I do think we should talk about shareware. Because, yeah. like, I, it, you you woke up this sleeping memory in me when we were when you mentioned shareware, because my childhood was spent being ripping the discs off magazines um, at, and buying them first. And then I would have, like, 140 games on a disc. Yeah. And you don't need to buy... No, anything when no. you have 140 games. I mean, I, my, I was spoiled as anything. My parents still bought me games, and ultimately, that's one of the things that led to me becoming a critic because I played a bunch of stuff. But <laughs> I think there's something else there. Becoming a spoiled ass. I mean, I am a spoiled ass. No denial from me. But like, what a wonderful time to put a disc in and be able to try 140 different ideas. I mean, lots of them are bad. Yeah, but still, like being able to just take like a sampler platter of games. Well, this is why I didn't like. I don't think I did get bought games. I The first time I was bought a game was for the Mega Drive. We got a Mega Drive for Christmas, me and my brother. And okay. that was the first time we were allowed a games console. Before then, all the games I played, I either played at a friend's house um, or I played um, on the home computer we had. But they were all... they were. I remember my dad had installed some games, but they were all just... He hadn't bought any games. They, they were literally all just freeware, shareware games. And we didn't have many of them. Jill of Jungle was one of the good ones. But... I think this was for a very long time. Most of my childhood, even when I went to a friend's house, my friend across the road had a much better computer. It ran Monkey Island. It ran Loom. And he actually got bought some games like those games. I reckon his dad probably played them. I don't know. But anyway, like I remember even Doom. Like To me, I remember that it was years later that I actually saw like the second chapter of Doom because I remember that the first chapter of Doom was shareware. So you could play the first like six or seven missions, maybe more. And I never got beyond that because I didn't actually like Doom that so much. So I have this theory that your uh, interest in games and the way that you see games um, might even be stymied in this era if you had like a SNES and you had, you know, Mario and then like six other very well-polished games. Like that's one kind of upbringing with games. That's one way of seeing games. It's entertainment and fun and joy. Whereas if you're the kid who grows up with 140 crap, broken, half-finished and occasionally amazing but profoundly weird games in the form of shareware, you end up seeing games as just something very different, I think. You end up seeing games as something that you explore that are a little scary or unsettling. Because sometimes you'd load up games on a shareware disc and they would be like, not horror games, but, you know, use like uh, awful imagery, you know, like the spiny alien game. Oh, that one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. And I mean, that's the same thing with like people who grew up with the spectrum. Like the thing was, it was like thousands exactly, of games. Exactly. But a lot of them were just crap. Or weird. Yeah. Because uh, uh, the spectrum had a very idiosyncratic like English style where a lot of games were just a lot of toilets, a lot of weird names for things. What was it? Was it Monty Minor or something? One of them Manic, was Manic Minor. Yeah. One of them was just like about, I think, about. It was very politically and very politically like anti-minor strikes and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was all about like yeah, that just snuck into you. Yeah, you don't get that with a with you know Super Mario, do you? Super Mario (laughs) isn't a symbol against like Thatcherism. Well, it's what you get when you get. Well, this was a symbol pro Thatcherism actually. I think at the time, but it's what happens when you uh, when you have games that are made by one people, one person, uh, which is a cool thing that we're starting to see coming back. But also, there's this. I mean. So, do you know the the scientific theory that if your dreams, if your actual real life dreams, if you finish a dream, if your REM cycle completes or whatever, actually no, that's not true because you have many dreams in an REM cycle. But yeah, um, if that dream ends and you're still asleep, it is wiped from your brain. You yeah. only remember dreams if you get woken up during right, which yeah. means that the only dreams that humans are ever partial to are the ones that we haven't finished. Which theoretically means that all dreams could have some super poignant ending that actually makes all dreams make perfect sense. It's like, oh, I was dreaming my mother was in a shoe because the shoe <laughs> represents me, whatever. Um, but shareware's like that. 
because your shareware is all unfinished. So you will never kind of have a shareware experience unless you actually spend, bought the things, which I certainly didn't. I don't know anyone who did as a no, kid. People did, but not us. So you're never going to see the ending of a shareware game. So you've got 140 unfinished dreams. That's the that's the very... Uh, but the, the narrative elements in these games were so mild. Like, sometimes. I mean, I remember like stuff like Jazz Jackrabbit and Jill of the Jungle and Commander Keen. It was always like, well, you got to the ice caves, but what's beyond? Find out in 60 brand new, amazing, <laughs> yeah. exciting... Like, it was it was just more. Like, Which, in a way, it's funny how like people complain about modern video games just being more and more and more. It's like, that's what they were. Like, They would give you something and then be like, hey, do you want like twice as much of this? When I knew we were talking about this, I was thinking about the fact that just the difference between... Uh, you know, like a kid now who gets like Daisy or Dota or Overwatch and then that is their game and they play it forever and they watch streamers play it. Lord knows I do that now. Even as an adult, it turns out that I can tap into that culture because I play Street Fighter V mm. and I will watch streamers play Street Fighter V all day. Um, so anyway, um, but my point is like the difference between that or playing Minecraft all the time and then instead having 150 slices of games that you dip into and you explore yeah. and you experience and, and what that does to... Um, not necessarily to people like us, but I think about what that does to game designers. Yeah. Because game designers have this hilarious thing where the indie games we get now are a lot of which are based on stuff that happened in the 90s and ideas that um, uh, game designers might have played in their childhood that they bring back. Um, uh, you know, like, uh, what's the... Uh, Under- Undertale being a good example of that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like, what does it do to the next generation of game designers who grow up playing Overwatch or Minecraft, that one game that they played obsessively when they were really young. Well, I think we're already seeing that, which is why, like, the amount of time I, I get sent codes for games on, I think, oh, this looks cool. And, like, I've said before, yes, I've played games where it's like, oh, it looks a bit Diablo-y, and then you stop playing, you're like, it's just Diablo, there's no twist. It's just, like, and you see that a lot, a lot of devs now who are, like, you know, early 20s, uh, mid-20s, they are just recreating games that they love when they were kids. And it's because that was that era when games became a bit more kind of like games that you will just play this game obsessively for a very, very long time. But then you can go back a long way and say that. Like Civ 2 was a game that classically lots of people just lost oh, themselves sure, to sure. forever. I guess I think about some of the uh, really weird indie uh, game designers like uh, the Catamites or Porpentine. And I think um, some of their style comes from playing a lot of weird games that didn't make sense. The Catamites has definitely talked about this in interviews, how in making his weird, hilarious games... Um, which people should absolutely check out. The Catamites is stuff. It's one I word. Really means I keep meaning shit out. Oh, crime Zone, man. You play. I really want to play the Wizard one. The what's it called? The Wizards. Wizard of the new one that's like three D but looks awful in a wonderful way. Oh, him playing around with Unity is hilarious because it's just the ugliest games you've yeah, ever played in your I mean, life. Just screenshots of it. You go, what even is this? Crime Zone is good because it's a game where you play the police. By which I don't mean you play a policeman. You play literally all <laughs> of the police at the same time. Um, anyway, uh, but the, he's talked about how I think his games are um, trying to recreate that sense that when you're a kid and you put a disc in, a game makes no sense to you. Yeah. Because it's not that sort of cuddly, welcoming Nintendo. Everyone's welcome here. It's like, you put in a game, it's not designed for you. It's it, it's not even necessarily designed well. This is it. And I mean, I think for me, the big thing about the shareware era and shareware in general that I find fascinating is just that now the way we consume games, the way we're expected to consume games, both as players and uh, as, as press as well, are looking at things. Um, these games, how often do you find now? And this is a, a big like my big blocking thing for me as a critic that I cannot quite get over at the moment is like, you want to cover a big new game, fine. How long do you have to look at this big new game before you can have an idea of it? Now, back in the PlayStation 2 era in the Xbox 360, like I could usually play something for about an hour and a half and have a measure of what it was. These days, like you, things are designed to be these big scoping things. So often you have to play something for like five or six hours before you have a feel for what it is. Yeah. And 
well, I remember the thing uh, shareware was just a sequence of things like you not sometimes popping in discs, sometimes just having like a disc that had hundreds of fifty, a hundred yeah. games on it, and you put it in and you'd open one, and like sometimes yeah, you just stumble into something and it'd be like maybe something really good but too complex, and you just immediately go no, no, <laughs> but you would just consume them unbelievably quickly. You would look at things for five minutes or two minutes. Sometimes you look at open something, look at it for thirty seconds, and go no. And I think what's interesting about that is we're now have this this culture for games where games are very expensive and very big. The idea is you buy something and you, you are supposed to invest at least five hours before you have a judgment. And back, actually, if you have a system whereby games at a base level, like in something you can just jump in and play and look at, and you can just do that and then maybe pay for it later, the, the way I used to consume games as a kid was just to do that, just have things where you don't have to download it, you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to wait, you can just double-click on a thing and then you can look at it for 30 seconds and think, do I want to give this more than 30 seconds? <laughs> and I think that that was sort of an ideal system in a weird way yeah, of th- having games that have to prove themselves to you within a minute or two minutes. Sure. I guess what I'm uh, interested in about this scene as well is just what I was talking about before, the sort of the holistic sense of not just um, shareware, not just being, I'm going to play this game for five minutes, stop, clean break, now I'm going to play this game for five minutes. It's the aggregation, if that's a word, of playing 10 games yeah. in 20 minutes which yeah. becomes an experience that is not any one of those games it's a weird awful mishmash almost like remix culture or something whereby you disengage your game and immediately plug it into something else and it ends up being like a fever dream because you play so many different weird things i mean i've it, actually found like even that lately like having played um a bit of horizon zero dawn then playing some zelda then playing some near all like open worldish games with like i keep getting really mixed up between what's in what. I'm like, oh, fishing. No, that's not in this one. That's like, <laughs> oh, this. No, that's from the other thing as well, which is kind of nice. I like those moments where they all blur in and you you have strange thoughts about things. But yeah, like I, I do kind of miss that turbo fire thing. of, And I really would like to see the games industry. And I think the problem is that now games are so complicated and so time consuming to make that it just doesn't make sense to make games that you sell for like nothing and people just try for like two minutes. Oh, I don't know. There's some, uh, well, this is what some of the indie That's what the mobile game, mobile phone game industry is. I think is, if but. you want that, the way to do it, and I'd have had some fun with this. Um, if, you know, for example, if there might be a, 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 a drug, which, uh, which I wouldn't take, but if there happens to be drugs in my house that someone could hypothetically take a fun thing to do is to play a load of um, weird games from indie creators that are like short five minute things. Yeah. That a lot of people on Itch.io will sell well, for like it, yeah. a dollar. And if you're in the right frame of mind for that, you can have an unbelievably good time. It's that shareware experience of this is mad for two, three, five minutes, half an hour, and then you move straight into the next thing. And you're paying it like a dollar for each. And if you want that experience, you go to Itch.io for that. I don't think you go to the mobile market. No, absolutely you do. But I think that's the thing is I, I like Itch.io, but it's almost as well. Like that is, there's now become this thing that if you're going to have a game which is uh, cheaply made and cheap to buy and readily available and stuff it tends to be leaning more towards being like an arty thing whereas i used to love that you you would have these strange arty odd things like sometimes i'd load up things way back in the shareware thing you'd be like this isn't even a game what is this like yeah it would just be a kind of visual experimentation thing but i like that it was kind of a yeah you you got really varying levels of sincerity and scope and aim and ideas and whereas like it, it kind of feels now that there's sort of a, a strange thing where it's like oh no proper big things are like this costs this much and then like arty experimental things are cheap and because yeah it's everything's kind of like it's difficult because when you say like oh why can't games be shorter and and cheaper and it's like people go yeah it does exist it's on like things like itchy and i'm like yeah but that's a different culture of games it's like 
I don't know. Like, You're talking about having very short experiences coming from big creators. I don't know. I just feel like um, there's been an, a, a kind of slightly unfortunate thing in terms of uh, everything becoming a bit pigeonholed in terms of where things fit in. And and we're not, this doesn't help. Like, you know, I, I played, you know, a, a game called Future Unfolding recently that was like, I kind of felt like a bit arty, which I liked and a bit too. And I didn't kind of, I liked it, but I didn't like it that much. But then I was like $15. It kind of just felt like it didn't fit for me. I was like, oh, no. No. And that's really unfortunate. A game shouldn't have to fit. It shouldn't, but we kind of have this system where things have to. Um, but we do seem to have developed this sort of like um, rather rigid system of, of, of does this fit the slot it's supposed to? Like, does this look and present? And yeah, it's kind of complicated. I, was saying, I don't really understand it myself, so I'm going to stop. Um, <laughs> sure, fine. But anyway, yeah. Jill of the Jungle, shareware. <laughs> That's Try our review it yourself. <laughs> We're actually going to wrap up a bit faster than usual this time because we've we've banged on about other stuff for a long time, which is lovely. But that's only because we've got a great question about games and theatre and stuff like that, which we're going to come back to next time after we've played a bit more Sexy Brutal. I promise we're not ending this podcast early because I want to go home and play Ghost Trick and more Sexy Brutal. No. That's not what's happening. No, no. But for real though, I am re- that theatre question is a doozy. It's going to be great. I have so many thoughts and there's so much exciting stuff to discuss there. Yeah, so come back to Dove Souls next time for episode 93 where we will talk about Sexy Brutal some more and we'll talk about yeah, that sort of stuff. Ah, Thank you for listening to Dark Souls. Still so excited. Yeah, honestly, like, man, the, the, the Tolvers just grabbed me. Sexy Brutal grabbed me immediately. Well played for that. And yeah, and I still, I'm I'm still quite into Nier. So at the moment, I just... You're spoiled for choice. I'm spoiled. I just listen, want to be left alone. I'm telling you, Super Mario Galaxy 2 is going to be the next one. I hear thing. it's going to be a hot thing, right? I hear it's everyone's talking deal. about it. It's a big deal. There's a guy in a galaxy. He's got to save a princess. It's wild. What kind of guy is this? Uh, he's a mute. Awesome. So it's unusual as having a disabled protagonist front and centre. I think that's great. And me too. If you've enjoyed Daft Souls, there's a bunch of stuff you can do. You can go to coolghost.net and you can go, say, hey, I like this. You can go to coolghost.net, go to ask <laughs> in a the question comments button. as opposed to just at your monitor. Just Is put that it in anything. Just, just, just shout at your screen. Uh, you can go to iTunes and give us a review or you can just tell somebody, you, you be like, hey, have you heard this podcast? You should listen to this podcast because, you know, it's like really good they don't do it that often but man when they do it's, it's just lovely if you're ever around nice some friends faces. who are like I wish there was a good video games podcast that's when you put you your, go hey buddy put your knee up on the nearest desk and yeah. go there is a podcast yeah. that's very good and then start playing your loot yes thank you so much for listening anyway we'll see you next time <laughs> take care of yourselves bye, bye.